0: Who is Jesus, and how should we respond to him? Who is Jesus, and how should we respond to him? That's one of the main questions, or main questions being answered in the Gospel of John. And it's essential for all of us to grapple with those questions. Who is Jesus, and how should we respond to him? In the text today, remember a few weeks ago, Jesus Christ has healed a lame man. He goes into the covered porticoes surrounding that football field-sized pool, and uh, there's a man, who wants to be, or a man who wants to be healed who has been lame for 38 years. And Jesus seeks him out and says, do you want to be healed? He's, of course he wants to be healed, and Jesus heals the man. And you say, well, okay, well, anybody with a heart, anybody with any empathy at all would celebrate the fact that Jesus just healed this man. But there was a group of people who were not happy. These were the legalistic, hypocritical Jewish leaders. And please don't take that as a pejorative against Jewish people, because anybody can be a hypocritical, legalistic, religious figure. And uh, these were not happy with Jesus at all, because he healed the man on the Sabbath, because the day of the week matters to them, to the degree that they had a a number of rules uh, governing the Sabbath day to make that Sabbath day a onerous drudgery for Jewish people constantly questioning whether or not they had violated a rule, and maybe they weren't right with God because uh, they had uh, broken some type of guideline. Because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, that immediately raised questions as to his authority. Who do you think you are, really? They didn't use those terms, but frankly, that's what they're saying. Who do you think you are? Where do you get off doing this, healing somebody on the Sabbath? Jesus answers them in our text... In John chapter 5, verse 17. Oh, by the way, you can put a bookmark in Genesis 1. That'd be helpful. Genesis 1, John 5. It'll be in Hebrews eventually. Hebrews 1. Jesus responds to these who are questioning his authority. And this is going to help us to see who Jesus is and how we ought to respond to him. He answers those who are questioning him in John chapter 5, verse 17 and says, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, I I taught recently the chapel at Maranatha Christian Academy, and I was in this text, and I used an illustration, and I'll use it with you guys, too. Imagine for a moment that you're driving your car, and some of you may have heavier feet than others. And so maybe the speed limit is posted at 80, and you're doing 100. All of a sudden, you see the red and blues behind you, and uh, you get pulled over. A police officer comes to your door and says, do you know how fast you were going? Well, officer, uh, I I saw a police car go by, and the police car was going 100, so I figured I will go 100. Is that a legit uh, reasoning? No, that police officer is going to look at you and say, who do you think you are? You don't have the authority to do that because you're not a police officer. They have the authority. You don't have the authority. You realize in this passage what Jesus is saying is because my father is working, I'm working. And by saying that, he is implying something very important, which the Jews understood. He's implying equality with God because God has the uh, prerogative to work on the Sabbath, I have the prerogative to work on the Sabbath. God is working, and so I'm working. And so that speaks to his equality with the Father. And so, in verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, but also because he was making himself equal with God. And so the implication being, God's working on the Sabbath, and I have the same prerogative as God. That's verse 17 and 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, they understood by the statement that he's making himself equal with the Father, and he doesn't correct them. He doesn't correct them. Oh, hold on, you misunderstood me. I'm not trying to make myself equal with God. That's not what he does. He allows it to stand. Well, that's very important. And so what Jesus then does in the remainder of the text, and what we're going to look at this morning, is he explains to his detractors just who he is and what authority he possesses, and who gave it to him, and how then all men ought to respond to Jesus. That's helpful to us this morning. Who is Jesus, and how should we respond to him? And so, to summarize what we're going to learn from Jesus this morning, he's going to reveal to us that as the beloved Son of God, he has been given authority to carry out the works of the Father, in giving life and bringing judgment so that all must honor Him just as they would honor the Father. We're going to have to lay some foundation this morning, so we're not going to get into a strict exposition of this text because we have to do some foundational work in understanding kind of the context in which Jesus is speaking. As we're going to see, the authority of Jesus is wrapped up in His identity as both the Son of God and the Son of Man, both of which are referred to in this passage in John 5. Now, I want you to notice something. Just kind of scan your text there in your Bible. Just kind of scan it. And look, verse 17, 19, 20, 21, 22, you see some repeated terms. In verse 17, my father's working until now. Verse 19, the son can do nothing except what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does. Verse 20, the father loves the son. 21, the father gives life, the son gives life. Verse 22, the father judges no one. He's given all judgment to the son. Well, what's the theme? Father, Son. Father, Son. God, the Father. Jesus is the Son. And so clearly what's happening here is that Jesus is centering the source of his authority squarely upon the nature of the relationship which he has with the Father. He's claiming for himself a unique and intimate relationship with God, one in which communicates privilege and power, privilege and power which other men don't have. And how does he describe that relationship? Well, that of a father and a son. And so throughout this passage, Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. God is the Father, in verses 17 through 26, and Jesus is His Son. So, what does it mean to say that Jesus is the Son of God? And you say, well, it means He's divine. Yes, but more. The title Son of God has Old Testament roots. We have to explore this in order to fully grasp who Jesus is uh, and then understand how we must respond to Him. This is vitally important because, remember, all the way back when we started into the Gospel of John, we saw that the Apostle John said that the purpose of his writing is so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in His name. And so this uh, understanding Jesus as the Son of God has eternal consequences. And so... I think we best pay attention. And so for our immediate purposes in John 5, an understanding of what it means that Jesus is the Son of God will make sense of the claim that He has authority to be working on the Sabbath. And as we explore the development of the concept of the Son of God throughout Scripture, we're going to find that when Jesus calls Himself God's Son, He's invoking a title which would have been very well known in His day. In fact, the idea of one being the Son of God stretches all the way back, all the way back to Genesis. And so, look in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to see that the idea of a Son of God stretches as far back as Adam and finds its Old Testament climax in David and subsequent Davidic kings. But look in Genesis 1. In the account of God's creation of man in Genesis 1, we read this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so it says there in verse 26 that when God made Adam, he made him in his own image. That is, Adam and Eve were created to reflect God himself. Whereas God is a spirit and cannot be seen, mankind was created to image forth the nature of God and the dominion of God on earth. And this is a covenantal relationship in which Adam and Eve are God's image bearers, and they to worship him and honor him and obey him while reflecting his glory upon creation. Just as a king might conquer lands and then uh, erect a statue of himself in order to communicate, this is my domain. So God makes mankind and says, you are my image, spreading my dominion over all the earth. If Adam and Eve were faithful as God's image-bearers, they would see the worship and dominion of God spread over all of creation. And as they were fruitful and multiplied, they would spread the worship of God through the generations. And so the Lord says in verse 28, "...be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion." So, as those bearing God's image, they were to be God's vice-regents. Even kingly figures... Establishing, established by God, and they were to exercise His dominion over creation. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 8 marvels at this concept that God created man in this way. It says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands, you put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And there's that marvel that God has chosen man, created in his image to exercise his dominion. And so Adam is created to represent God's rule in creation. As God's image, he was to spread the worship and dominion of God throughout all the earth. But Genesis 1 says more than that. It says not only were Adam and Eve created in the image of God, but it says they're created in the likeness of God, the likeness of God. Now, this basically means in some way to be like God. As Adam exercised God's dominion on earth in, as his image, he was to do so while exhibiting the character and nature of God. And so he was to rule for God while espousing the character of God. To what extent mankind is made in the likeness of God, not entirely clear, but at least we know this involves the fact that we're made to express God's communicable attributes, and that is, you know, we're to be loving and gracious and merciful and just and good and kind while operating as God's vice-regents, spreading His dominion across the globe. And so, as Adam exercised dominion over creation as God's royal vice-regent, he was to do so uh, exhibiting the character qualities of the Lord. But in addition to this, we find that to be made in the likeness of God also entails relationship. Relationship. Specifically, the relationship of, you guessed it, a father and a son. Look in Genesis 5, quickly. In Genesis 5, we find that Adam has a son, and his name is Seth. And it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And there we see the repetition of those terms. Adam has a son, and how is the son described? In his own likeness and after his image. Same terms, in the same context. And and so we see there that the idea of likeness and image is connected to sonship. Connected to sonship. As Adam's son, it could be said that Seth was fathered in Adam's likeness and his image. Now, that could be somewhat lost on us. Here we are in our culture in 2023, and uh, it's not so much anymore that you have a son, and your son just kind of follows in your footsteps, right? Taking on your vocation and so on. But... Traditionally, it was expected that a son would not only inherit the traits of his father, but would represent his father well. The son would honor and obey his father. The son would count it a shameful thing to tarnish the reputation of the father. He would often follow his father's footsteps and take up his father's vocation. The son, as the image and likeness of his father, would honor and obey him in the context of loving relationship. He would reflect his father's character and values while representing him well, even sharing in the work of his father. He'd be like his father in nature and character and vocation. So here's the question. If likeness and image are connected to sonship, where Seth and Adam are concerned, and Adam is made in the image and likeness of God, would it be appropriate to refer to Adam as a son of God? Would that be appropriate? Yes, it would be very appropriate. Luke chapter 3, verse 37, as Luke is giving us the genealogy of Jesus, tracing it all the way back to Adam through Joseph. In that long list of the son of, and the son of, and the son of, starting from Jesus to Joseph and all the way back to Adam, Luke says this, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, The son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, who is the son of Adam, who is the son of God. The son of God. Adam was the son of God. What does that mean? Well, it means he's made in the image and likeness of the Father. He's created to live in relationship with God, loving and honoring and obeying him while operating as his appointed king over creation. And so, a king which ruled with traits of God... That's who Adam was to be, properly representing and reflecting God. In this way, he's to spread the worship and dominion of God all over creation. This would include raising up faithful offspring, uh, who would also image forth God on earth while living in loving relationship with him. If Adam did all of this, then he would be a faithful son. He would be a faithful son. So, summary. As early as Genesis 1, we find the concept of, concept of sonship and introduced. God's faithful Son will honor and obey Him. He'll live in godliness. He'll reflect the character of God. He'll represent Him accurately. He'll bring God's glory to bear upon earth. He'll share in the work of the Father, including exercising dominion. And He'll bring forth an entire race of men and women who will do the same. He'll do all of that in the context of a loving father-son relationship. And all of this, if all of this worked as it should, then the entire world will, would be filled with faithful image-bearers spreading God's dominion in worship, right? That's the plan. Well, how'd that work out? How'd that work out? Adam was not a faithful son. Before, out of Genesis 3, we find that he's a disobedient son. Instead of bringing God's dominion to bear upon earth, he sought out his own dominion. Instead of bringing glory to God, he sought his own glory. Instead of subduing creation, he was subdued by creation, Instead of carrying out the work of God, he went rogue and did his own work. Instead of treasuring his relationship with God, he broke the relationship and hid from God. Instead of bringing forth a race of men and women who had spread the dominion and the glory and the worship of God all over the globe, he plunged the entire race into sin, so that Romans 5 says, so that all have sinned. Adam was defaced as the image of God and failed to live in God's likeness, and so he was not a faithful son. So then... Did God abandon his design for the world to be filled with worshippers made in his image, exercising dominion on earth while reflecting his glory? Not at all. Fast forward, you find a man named Abram. God adopts him into his family. We know he adopts him because he exercises the authority to change his name. Changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Promises him an inheritance just as a father would to his son. And so uh, Abram is chosen by God to be the one then who would exercise dominion and lead a people to bring glory to the Father. After Abraham is Isaac, and after Isaac is Jacob, and then Jacob becomes the progenitor of the nation of Israel. Of course, you know the story that all of Israel becomes uh, enslaved in Egypt. God then, remembering his covenant with Abraham, decides to save or to redeem his people out from the slavery of Egypt. Now I want you to see something amazing here. When Israel found themselves enslaved, God works out their redemption to deliver from Pharaoh. And in doing that and exercising that redemption, he's doing more than rescuing a people. He's actually taking them to be his own people. He's entering into covenant relationship with them. Now, how do you think God would describe the relationship that he is about to have with the nation of Israel after redeeming them from slavery in Egypt? What type of relationship do you think you would use to characterize uh, that connection? Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold... I will kill your firstborn son. In Egypt, it was commonly felt that the Pharaoh was the son of the God of Egypt. Uh, What God is saying is, Pharaoh, not only are you not the son of God, uh, but uh, I am God, and my son is Israel, whom you have enslaved. Let my son go. Hosea refers to the Exodus in this way. In Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The sonship for which God created Adam has now been bestowed upon Israel as a nation. Israel's is the corporate son. The entire nation was to be a nation of men and women who would image forth the glory of God, who would advance the dominion of God and spread the worship of God throughout all the earth. The entire nation were to be those who carried out the work of God, who reflected the holy character of God, who represented God well to all the other nations, who loved and served and obeyed God in the context of an intimate father-child relationship. Of course, Israel, like Adam, proved themselves to be what? An unfaithful son. Shortly after being redeemed and adopted by God, they grumble and they complain and they rebel. They fall back into idolatry. They continually give in to temptation. And there in the wilderness, uh, they give in to that temptation, and many fall and are not permitted to enter the promised land until the next generation. An unfaithful son. Eventually, however... The Lord changes course, sort of, according to His plan. And He establishes a king over Israel, who will lead the people to fulfill their calling as His chosen people. In an interesting turn then, God moves from Adam being His son, eventually then the corporate son of all of Israel, but then He appoints a king to lead that nation of Israel, and the Bible says that He adopts that king as His special son, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from me. I mean, that's the cry of humanity saying we don't want the authority of God, right? We don't want the authority of God. If if you're not sure whether or not that's happening today, you know, watch Disney Plus, right? Uh, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And the initial application of this is David, David upon the throne. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in the pieces like a potter's vessel. He's saying, King David, upon the Davidic throne, you're my son. Upon his installation upon the throne over Israel, the Lord says, You're my son, and this is the day that I've begotten you. Verse 10 Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. I have one whom I I have established as authority to exercise dominion, and he is my son, and when he ascends the throne, that's the day of which I have begotten him, and so I have given him dominion, and I've given him authority, and he's ruling on my behalf, and so kiss the son, lest he be angry. And so Adam is son via creation, and the nation of Israel becomes son via redemption, and then the king becomes son via his installation upon the throne. And so what of the nation of Israel? Are they no longer God's son? It's just the king now, just King David? Is that it? Well, no. Because here we find a new arrangement. King David would be the representative son. David represents the entire nation. He's going to lead them and exemplify for them what it means to be a son of God. So he's leading an entire nation of sons as the representative son. And so we find David is a man who spreads the dominion of God, advances the worship of God, intercedes for the people of God, reflects the character of God, carries out the work of God, and all of this in the context of a father-son relationship. From this point on, a pattern is established in Israel, indeed in the whole earth. The king sitting upon the Davidic throne is the son of God, charged with being faithful where Adam fell. Speaking of David's son and his sons after him, the Lord says to David in 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What does the Lord say? He who sits on the throne of David is the son of God. Represents the people of God, leads them to love and adore and worship and obey the Father. He's to spread the worship and dominion of God across the globe, producing an entire people who reflect God's image and his likeness as sons and daughters of God. Well, how did David do? David fails. David succumbs to his own temptations, his own corruption. His son then takes the throne, Solomon, and things get worse from there, and the entire Davidic line falls into chaos. David sins against God. Solomon sins against God. How about the subsequent Davidic kings? Is disastrous. So that when we come to the New Testament period, the Davidic throne is actually what? It's vacant. There is no Davidic king. There is no Davidic king. As far as the people are concerned, there is no son of God. This did not mean, however, that there was not hope. A host of Old Testament scriptures look forward to the day when one would come who would sit on that throne. One would come who would sit on the throne, and not only would he be considered a son of David, sitting on the Davidic throne, but that one would be called the son of God. So there was hope. There's one who would faithfully lead God's people into genuine worship and spread that worship throughout the world. He would succeed where Adam failed. He would succeed where Israel failed. He will succeed where all the other Davidic kings failed. And again, not surprisingly, this future figure is referred to as a son. Isaiah 9.6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. A king will arise to the throne who will be a son. Not only will he be called a son, but he'll also be called what? Mighty God. He'll be different from all others in that the throne upon which He sits, will be an eternal throne that will last forever. Who would this son be? Would he be faithful? Would he finally be a faithful son with whom the Father is well pleased? Matthew chapter 3. And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Son has arrived. The faithful Son. The obedient Son. God's beloved Son. Not Adam. Not Israel. Not David. All who sinned and proved to be unfaithful, but Jesus beloved by the Father, and only pleasing to Him. This is the long-anticipated Son of God. He's arrived. It's because of this anticipation that many figures encountering Jesus in the New Testament are so quick to declare Jesus to be the Son of God. And I'm trying to, to help us expand our understanding of that term or that title, Son of God. Because oftentimes we see that and we just say, well, that just means deity. That means He's God. Son of man means that he's man. Son of God means that he's deity. And that's fine, but that's narrow. The reason why so many figures very early on in Jesus' ministry could be so quick to say, son of God, is not because they are recognizing him as deity that early on in his ministry, though that would come later, but because they had this history of anticipation waiting for that figure who would come who would be the powerful authoritative son of god who would exercise divine dominion over god's kingdom that's why nathaniel and john 1 i mean john 1 just because jesus says to nathaniel i saw you sitting under the fig tree remember that he says rabbi you are the son of god i mean that's a pretty hearty confession but immediately he says you are the king of israel Those two things were somewhat synonymous. You're the Son of God, the King of Israel. You're sitting upon David's throne. You are the Son to the Father. What these early followers of Jesus would eventually realize is that Jesus, this one who came as the Son of God, was actually eternally God the Son. So God the Son comes and He assumes the position and the throne of the Son of God. John chapter 1. This is the confession of the Apostle John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was uh, made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then down to verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's simultaneously God and the Son. God the Son is the Son of God, and as such, He's infinitely superior to any who came before Him. Now, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to look at one more passage, kind of heading to our conclusion here, to help us understand Jesus as the superior Son of God. And the best we can hope to do is just scratch the surface of this topic this morning. Hebrews chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Jesus, appointed heir of all things. Unlike Adam, who was created by God, Jesus, according to the writer of Hebrews, is the Creator. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Unlike Adam, who was merely made in the image and likeness of God to reflect God's glory, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. No diminishing, no dilution. He's the exact expression of the Father. He's the superior Son. Continues, After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Unlike Adam, the son, who could not make purification for sin, instead he plunges the whole human race into sin. And unlike David, who succumbs to his own sin, and unlike Israel, uh, who gave into their own sin and rebellion, this son actually makes purification, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world. Unlike David, the son of God, who sat on a throne and defiled it by giving into his own sin, Jesus, the son of God, was sinless and made purification for the sins of the people. Unlike David, who sat on an earthly throne, uh, ruling a kingdom, Jesus sits on the heavenly throne and rules the universe. Then the writer of Hebrews now makes this comparison of Jesus, the son of God, to David, the son of God, explicit in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Where's that from? From Psalm 2. That's Psalm 2. That's Psalm 2 referring to the installation of David upon the throne is that ascending to the throne was that moment when God said, Today I have begotten you. And now the writer of Hebrews is applying this to Jesus, saying that Jesus is the greater son. Jesus is the greater Davidic king. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Where's that from? That's from 2 Samuel 7. That's the other passage we read where we see the Davidic covenant. Jesus is the greater David. He's the greater king. He's the greater son. He has a greater throne. He has a greater dominion. And look at verse 8, it continues. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus is the Son of God, and He sits on the eternal throne. He's the obedient Son who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. He is God the Son of eternity past, who laid the foundations of the earth and fashioned the heavens. He sits upon an eternal throne, and all nations and all creation are being brought under His dominion. So then, if Jesus is the Son of God, so then if Jesus, God the Son, is the Son of God, come to succeed, we're all other sons failed, what would we expect to see in his earthly ministry? Well, now we come back to, and we will stay here, John 5. John 5. If Jesus, God the Son, is the Son of God, who's come to succeed where all prior sons failed, what would we expect to see in his earthly life? First of all, we would expect to see him doing the works of the Father, sharing in those works. Look at Jesus' response to his detractors in verse 17 of John 5. But Jesus answered him, My father is working until now, and I'm working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We would expect the son to be doing the works of the father. What else would we expect? We would expect to see the faithful son perfectly obeying the father. Look in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. He's not like Adam going rogue, doing his own thing. He's not like Israel being tempted in the wilderness and falling. In fact, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, remember that? How did Satan preface every accusation or temptation against Jesus? If you are the Son of God, then Jesus didn't take the bait. The way He proved His sonship was not through the exercise of illegitimate power, but He proved His sonship, how? Through perfect obedience. So we would expect to see Him perfectly obey the Father. We would expect to see Him do the works of the Father. What else would we expect if He is the Son of God? We would expect Him to have an intimate relationship with the Father. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. The Father shows me everything He's doing. Why? Well, because He loves the Son. There's nothing the Father is doing that He doesn't show the Son. That's the nature of the relationship, that intimacy that Jesus the Son has with the Father. What else would we expect if Jesus is the Son of God, the one sitting upon the throne of David? that faithful son, we would expect to see him given dominion and authority. Look in verse 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to exercise judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The Father has given the Son dominion. He has given Him power and He has given Him authority. The Son can give eternal life to whomever He chooses, and He can judge those uh, who must be judged. And so the Son has dominion. He has power and authority over life. He can call men out of the grave, some to the resurrection of life, and some to the resurrection of judgment. And so if this is who Jesus is, if He is this faithful Son, what else would we expect? Well, we would expect that all of mankind then must give honor to Jesus as the Son. Look in verse 23. Consequently, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so this is, this is we say, who is Jesus and how should we respond to him? Well, we've kind of seen who Jesus is. Well, this is how we ought to respond to him. You love God, love Jesus. You believe in God, believe in Jesus. You seek to obey God, obey Jesus. You seek to worship God, worship God. Jesus. In fact, that's the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes with the Father except through Him. If you're going to honor the Father, you must honor the Son. This brings us back to Psalm 2. And uh, the Father says that all the nations rage, and He laughs in derision and says, My Son is upon the throne, and so kiss the Son, lest He be angry. You all must honor the Son as you would honor the Father. Then lastly, what else would we expect? Well, we would expect to see this faithful son, this one on David's throne, this representative son, we would expect to see him produce and lead a people into spiritual life. And again, this is what verse 24 is talking about. He says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus is the means by which those who are spiritually dead then come to spiritual life. He's making an entirely new race of people. Whereas Adam failed as a faithful son, plunging the entire race into sin and death. Jesus says, if you hear and believe in me, what? Spiritual life. A new race of those who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So he is the obedient and faithful son. who's come to perfectly reflect and reveal the Father. He's the representative Son who came to make and lead a people to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. As the Son of God, he had a unique relationship with the Father in which the Father revealed to him all that he was doing. As the Son of God, he also shared in the work of the Father. As the Son of God, he had the power and authority to give life life to whomever he chose. He had the power and authority to exercise judgment. As a Son, he deserved the same honor that was due the Father. And so this father-son relationship, which saw the father bestow such love upon Jesus and grant such authority to Jesus, was predicated upon the fact that Jesus was the perfectly obedient son who would obey even to the point of death. And so John chapter 10, verse 17 says, For this reason the father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. He proved his obedience all the way to the point of death, and a sacrificial death at that. A death not for his own sins, but to provide the purification of our sins. So, did Jesus have the authority to heal on the Sabbath? Kind of seems like a silly question at this point, doesn't it? Did he have the authority to heal on the Sabbath? Yes, he had the authority to heal on the Sabbath. Why? Because as the beloved Son of God, he has been given authority to carry out the works of the Father in giving life and bringing judgment, so that all must honor him, the Son, just as they would honor the Father. This morning, God's Son, who is the Son of God, sits upon his throne. God has given him all authority to give eternal life and to judge. This morning, if you would have eternal life, it only comes through Jesus the Son. He has the authority to give that life. He also has the authority to judge. Consequently, we must all honor the Son as the Father is to be honored. This morning, if you're not yet a Christian, you must bow the knee to Jesus as the Son of God. You can say, kiss the Son, put your faith in Him, He grants eternal life, or what? We'll be on the receiving end of the power and authority of the Son when He returns later, but that time coming in judgment. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Son. We confess this morning that Jesus, not only sitting upon the throne as the Son of God, in your image and likeness, reflecting your glory, creating a people who will worship you in spirit and in truth, spreading your dominion across the globe. But we also confess that Jesus, the Son of God, is God the Son. As we see in the remainder of Scripture, it becomes explicit that Jesus, the Son of God, is divine. Given all, possessing all divine attributes, worthy of all honor and all worship that is due deity. And so, Lord, we confess this morning that Jesus, God the Son, is the Son of God. Help us to respond to him well. Those of us who are Christians this morning, help us to have a deeper and a better understanding of the character and nature of Jesus so that we can worship him better. And then, Lord, we pray this morning for those who are here who are not yet Christians. We pray that they would see their need for Jesus. Yes, authoritative, yes, coming in judgment, but also the tender, merciful Savior who calls all men and women to himself so that he can give them spiritual rest. And so, Lord, we pray for some this morning that they had received Jesus, the Savior and Lord, trusting him, believing in him, understanding that he is the one whom you have established as the one to be honored and to be believed upon and to be trusted for salvation. And we pray that some would be saved. Lord, we thank you for this. Help us to praise and to love Christ better. It's in his name that we pray, amen.